Blog Talk Radio. I'm Raina Sparsa. You don't have to be. Boy, I hope you guys have been enjoying some time off. I know I have. Desperate House Witches is not a G, PG, or even an R-rated show, so if bad language, probably function, dirty talk of any kind might offend you, too bad. I'm doing it anyway. Desperate House Witches is brought to you by the incredibly wicked one herself, the amazing Dorothy Morrison. Please check out www.wickedwitchstudios for all of your witching needs. And the home blessing balls for 2023 are available and will be available through the end of January. So if you have been waiting to get them, go ahead and get them. And like Aunt Rena always tells you, buy your balls and pears. Check out www.wickedwitchstudios.com. You can get the direct link on Facebook page for Wicked Witch Studios. All right. For the last show of the year, very excited, I have with me the incredible LTZ, Laura Tempest-Zakroff. Hi, my friend. How are you? Good. I'm like, wait, wait, it's the end of the year. Oh, my gosh, it is. <laughs> I know. Yeah, you're my last. You are the very last show of the year, which honors me greatly. I'm so happy to have you. It's been a minute since we've had a chance to talk, but you have been super, super duper busy. Um, <laughs> but first, before we get to that, tell me, tell me about your holiday and if you got to see family and how that all went. Yes, uh, it was pretty good. We had kind of a, an extended because we went to the West Coast to visit with some of my partner's family and got to see a whole bunch of folks in, in safe situations. Uh, very still very yeah. cautious, uh, but to see friends we haven't seen in two to three years at least, um, as well as family. And then we did a, a little bit of Yuletide stuff here, and also visited a bit with my family. So, um, you know, just enough good taste, good good to see folks, and awesome great food. <laughs> That's always the best part. Yeah, always. Yeah, I love the food part is my favorite because I do a whole lot of cooking for the holidays. But how was air travel? I mean, did you feel comfortable? Are people being respectful? Uh, I Luckily, we flew in and out before um, the insanity that's been happening over the last week. Um, but uh-huh. most of the flights were on, um, you know, in the airports, people were masked. Uh, and right. what's kind of funny is you notice that um, people who are masked will sit next to other people who are masked. So it was like all of um, like all of our areas. Like okay, I feel pretty pretty confident about this. And uh, you know, of course, there's still people who you know, like when we landed in Rhode Island, there was a whole family like hacking up over the corner. Like just not like stay away from that corner of the the uh, baggage claim. (laughs) Wow, I get it. But I'm glad you're safe, and I'm glad you're back. You know, in your environment where you're, where you are 
uh, creating and doing incredible things and restocking your shop. Hello. Can we just give a <laughs> shout-out for Alchemy uh, Arts, which is Laura's shop, um, where you sell amazing stuff. We never really talk about your shop very much. Can you go ahead and give a, a big plug for your shop? Oh, sure. So uh, Alchemy Arts is where uh, you can find prints of a lot of my artwork, which is just traditional prints on paper as well as hand-embellished prints on wood. I have note cards and stickers, and there's tarot bags with my art on it, and altar cloths and mm-hmm. ornaments and um, just a little bit of everything. And, uh, yeah, that's like what else? Oh, my books. Yeah, you go first. Get my books in next. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> things that I've made, they are they are there. Yes, and fabulous things I might add. I have uh, several pieces all over my house. I have I have the tarot bags. I have the artwork. Um, really cool, cool stuff. And of course the books. Which and I apologize because I never talk about your shop, and we need to do that all the time. But the reason you were coming on today was to talk about one of your newer books, Visual Alchemy, which is a wonderful book and, to me, kind of like the follow-up to Sigil Witchery. Um, Oh, it says that here, too. Oh, (laughs) I thought that, and then I read that on the book itself. Hello. Um, But Sigil Witchery was really, like, so popular and one of my favorite books. What led you to write this follow-up? So it's it's two parts. The first is that having taught sigil witchery um, hundreds of times now, you know, before and after writing the book, is you know, there's always situations where I'm like, okay, what else do people need to know about this? What am I observing? What questions are people asking? How can I further help them in this process? So there's a lot of refining sigil technique for folks, really giving them secrets to design uh, to make your sigils mm-hmm. more effective, uh, more streamlined, uh, things that just feel more potent as well as personal to you. But the other part of this is uh, it's about the intersection of art and magic. And technically, this is the first book I ever proposed to Llewellyn back in the day. I think it was 2014. Oh. And... Uh, and they're like, yes, please send us the proposal. Because I had met them at um, PantheaCon that year, and they were doing like the speed, you know, speed proposals. And Bill, the publisher, was like, please, yes, yes, send us this. And I was like, great, I'll do that. <laughs> and then, and then I was like, oh my gosh, I, I can't believe they actually want this. And now I have to write a book. <laughs> so, um, I, I went on a detour and, you know, ended up writing The Witch's Cauldron and then everything else before <laughs> getting to this book. So it's it's been a long time coming and really diving into what I've learned as an artist and a witch uh, come together can really make your, your practice more powerful, more palpable, um, more sensual in so many ways. And I really believe that everybody can benefit by looking at art through this lens. And magic, absolutely. And, you know, the interesting thing to me about this book is, and I can understand why you would have proposed this book first, because as a person who is not incredibly artistic, which I am not, 
it would have been enormously helpful for me to have this kind of encouragement because the book is really not just about sigils and not just about magic and not just about art intersecting with magic. It's also about you as a person encouraging others to go ahead and not feel like you can't be artistic in your magic. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying, so what I'm trying to say is, as a person who is not uh, inherently able to draw or paint or do any of the artistic things, um, to me this book is very encouraging from the standpoint of don't give a shit what people say. You can do this, and you should actually be doing this. Whether or not you, you find your own art to be classically uh, beautiful or not really isn't the point. It's kind of what we tell musicians, and I'm, I'm from a family of musicians, and, you know, when someone in our family starts writing songs, you know, oh, it's shit, it's terrible, I can't do this, and it's like, no, 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 you can. Just keep mm-hmm. writing the songs and you will get better. And it's just a progression that you have to go through. And I guess it finally occurred to me after getting into this book that, oh, you're telling me what I've been telling people for years about music. You're telling me that about art. It doesn't matter. Get in there and do it. Right. And and music is art, right? As I talk about, even though it's, you know, it's called visual alchemy, it's more of the whole experience. So whether it's visual art or music or poetry or theater, you know, pretty much anything that we use as a form of expression, it's so important to be able to build that confidence um, and to, you know, go through the process and not be afraid to experiment. And that's so much online for what we do with magic too, that we need to be able to experiment and to trust ourselves and to play around. Yeah, but I, but as somebody who doesn't do art, quote, I put that in big quotes, visual art is probably where what I should state it as. You know, I think there is this inherent thing that happens to some of us in art class as children because mm-hmm. we know we're being judged by a teacher. And I know that might sound silly. I'm a 61-year-old adult and I'm well past those years, but I think some of those experiences really do linger for a lot of people, even if it's not a conscious thing. Somewhere in the back of your mind, you knew that what you were putting on paper was being judged. And I think Mm -hmm. somewhere in my head that cut my creativity because I had many friends who could draw beautifully. I mean, just out of the gate, they seemed to have this, natural talent. My son, you know, when he was a child, would draw incredible things from memory. And it was like, I can't even get a straight line together with a ruler. How is this even possible? So there's a lot of mysticism to me, and I'm sure not just me, to being an artist and being able to develop that talent. I mean, obviously you've got it, Um, You know, and as I've said to folks many times, I can put three pieces of your artwork side by side and no one would necessarily know it was done by the same artist because your skills are so varied and your themes are so varied and 
all beautiful, and I have all kinds of your art. And it's like, oh, who did this? Oh, who did this? Oh, who did this? And it's like, LTZ did that. LTZ did that. LTZ did that one too. <laughs> really? Yeah. And it's you know, it kind of you get to a place with some artists where you tend to recognize all their work, like Peter Max, for example, of whom I'm, I was always a very big fan. He had this Technicolor, Beatles-esque, 70s, you know, psychedelic thing going on. And you always knew or could relate that that's a Peter Max picture or painting. Mm -hmm. And then he suddenly changed his styles up in the 80s and 90s and started doing, you know, more florals and, and pretty ladies and other things. And it was like, that doesn't look like a Peter Max. But with you, it's all you. It all looks like something you've done. It looks like something that's got this incredible well of vibrancy to it, even when you're doing all these different styles. Do you, do you distinguish when you're sitting at your boards, I'm assuming you have lots of easels, you know, waiting for your inspiration, do you ever sit down and know, okay, this is, this is the style of mine I'm going to do today, or does it just kind of pour out from wherever? It, it depends on what I'm working on and what the project, you know, or the idea requires. Like so many of my paintings start as a, a vision. You know, so mm -hmm. there's something, I wouldn't even say photographic, but it's definitely iconic um, that I'm envisioning. And so there's, of course, how it's going to change in the translation process from, you know, my brain onto a piece of wood or paper or whatever it's going to be. Uh, but, you know, some things do have very, you know, different media have different um, perks as well as uh, minuses to them. Uh, so when yeah. I came to do the, you know, the Anatomy of a Witch Oracle, it looks very different than the Liminal Spirits because it, mm -hmm. it really needed to be precise. It I wanted that sense of anatomical or botanical type drawings and kind of the sense of printmaking, like the old school printmaking, you know, which I majored in in college, um, where the liminal spirits was really a communication between each of those spirits, and they're a little bit more amorphous, and they didn't need to be as linearly precise with this tiny, tiny detail. Um, I mean, they're pretty detailed for to most people, but at the same time, there's a simplification to them that I think helps embody spirit uh, for that particular mm -hmm. kind of communication. Do you ever feel like, and, and please forgive me if this is an inappropriate question, because I'm, I don't have a lot of artists to speak with, so I, I love this opportunity. Um, do you ever feel like, you're channeling something, like a message or something, or is this really just how you've developed your talent and this is where it all, you know, this is, this is the vessel that it all pours out from and it hits the way it hits? Um, probably a little bit of both. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. When I'm working with, um, like, some of the, the deity-based or mythic-based pieces, uh, I'm having a conversation with you know, whatever entity or spirit or deity is coming through. 
And so it's definitely this relationship that's happening, consultation. Um, it's still obviously coming through me. I'm not going to say that they painted it, um, which, you know, some, some artists have said that, that, you know, they are possessed by spirit or deity and that that, that is who created the painting. And like, nope, nope, nope. I am, I am the, the owner of the spirit of the body. And right. <laughs> it's, right. it's coming through me and that we are having this agreement that, you know, it's like when you, if you commission a portrait, you know, of yourself with somebody mm-hmm. else, you know, there's your likeness, there's what you tell them what you want and what media you might want, or you're choosing that particular photographer or painter because of what their you know, previous work looks like. And uh, that it's a collaborative process, but it's still the work of the artist or the photographer. And that's kind of how I feel for a lot of those pieces. And then anything else is just kind of swimming up from my subconscious. So it's either coming from below or above. Right. So in essence, if, if, if it is a message, it's still, everything is still your interpretation. I was just wondering if, yeah, so you are communing with spirit depending on what it is um, or not. I mean, there are just some things where you sit down and you create, right? I mean, there are those moments where you just sit down and you pick up the brush and you just go. Is it ever just stream of consciousness where you're not thinking of something specific? Yeah, I, I like to do a lot of those little color studies and playing with lines. It becomes, becomes sort of a, um, a different kind of trance experience because I'm just focusing on the colors, the shapes, the texture, um, how the brush feels against the, the surface or the pen against the paper and letting it come. But also, you know, a fair amount of work is you know, figuring out my own feelings, my own um, mysteries that I'm solving as well. Right? So that's coming from within. And sometimes there is a very clear way of how that's going to work. But most of the time it's like, well, <laughs> see what comes. Um, and just <laughs> let it show up. Like the, um, the illustrations for We the Liminal, I had, like, a basic rough idea of what I thought those were going to be, but each one of those surprised me as it came out. Like, I didn't do extensive, you know, I don't do detailed sketches to begin with. I very, very rarely do that, um, which is probably also why I don't, <laughs> I don't do a lot of um, <coughs> commission, formal commission work, because I'm like, that's, that's not how it works. It's not going to be how we're going to go. Um, <laughs> and I don't, I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that kind of work, so it's fine. Um, but, you know, there's often just like this little wisp, you know, a few lines on the paper of, you know, how it might be composed. And then what comes through is what, you know, what you see in the end, um, which is, it's, you know, it's exciting. It's fun. It can also be scary. It can be um, nerve-wracking. There's always a point. Um, I think most artists experience that, and this is what most people are not familiar with or become uncomfortable with, is that you will hate it. <laughs> Before you like it or love it, um, you know, you just have you question yourself, uh, and that's simply part of the process um, as you're going through. Which is why I talk about in the book is really learning to sit with being uncomfortable, learning to allow yourself to keep pushing and not just give up because you're like, oh, well, this looks dumb. Uh, you you'll, you can have booklets and pages and pads and such of all oh, well, this looks dumb. I'm just going to stop, and you never get to that that threshold, right? You never cross um, mm-hmm. between the liminal spaces to, to really truly manifest, to bring the art into being, because you're thinking about birthing anything. It's always 
a bit of discomfort. There's always a point where it's like, how is this going to work and what is it going to mean? And I think if it comes out all too easily, then, you know, there there wasn't any risk involved. And I'm not sure, I think I, I feel like I included in here. I'm just going to double check and see. Um, yes. Yeah. All right. Um, so in the conclusion, I share with folks uh, one of my favorite Rilke pieces, and it was a letter to his wife. And the short part of it is, surely all art is the result of one's having been in danger, of having to go through experience all the way to the end, where no one can go any further. The further one goes, the more private, more personal, more singular an experience becomes. And the thing, the thing one is making finally is finally the necessary, irrepressible, and nearly as possible definitive utterance of the singularity. And it's just like that idea that all art is the result of having been in danger of going through an experience. I'm like, that's mm-hmm. something, something I think all magical practitioners should also embrace and understand and see uh, that these two things are very similar. And if we allow ourselves to you know, move and to play with art, we become more skilled at our magic as well as you know, working with the universe around us. Yeah, I I have to admit, I have been one of those people that is like, I have, okay, so I have been doing the same doodle for 50 years, more than 50 years, and it never seems to change. And I, you know, I've wanted to be more artistic. I have many times, you know, been to the Michaels website and put 10 canvases in the basket thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a whack at it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And then I don't do it. And there seems to be this switch in my brain that says, why are you going to waste money on something you're obviously going to fuck up? But, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you keep, you keep pounding this into my head through your books and your works that <laughs> don't do that. You are missing out on a key component of your own magic. Stop relying on me to do it for you. I mean, not that you're saying that necessarily, <laughs> but you kind of are that person in my life. You know what I mean? Like, your art mm-hmm. makes me feel inspired. That's why I buy it. I, You know what I'm saying? So it's kind of like, it's. I love supporting you, but I'm also taking the lazy way out. <laughs> and it's very true. <laughs> So I do feel like I should, you know, stop doing that. Like, of course, continue to support you because I love your stuff, and my husband would kill me if I stopped buying your stuff because you're very popular around here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I I need to start. I I need to start. It's never too late. I'm 61. I can still do this, right? It's not too late. Absolutely. My my yeah, great so aunt, who's actually one of the people who inspired me to make art, didn't start taking up oil painting until she moved to Arizona, um, and she was in her 60s, and right. created hundreds, if not even thousands, of paintings um, that uh, you know that she created for the next 30 some years. So, you know, yeah. that's the thing. And this also the thing is, it's not about replacing art or not, you know. Um, like I, we also have an art problem, which is, you know, I really, 
where I really feel really blessed is because pretty much any time Nathan and I go out, um, you know, whether it's to our you know, local art marts like the Flea or um, other galleries or things, and there's young artists there, we are always buying art. Like, we don't, we don't have the room for it, but we yeah. can't help ourselves because um, we love supporting the art. We love images. And I love, I love to see how other artists uh, explore similar topics or things that I'm like, I'm never going to explore that, but I really appreciate how they did that. Um, you know, because yeah. art just makes our world more magical just looking at it. But going back to, um, you know, creating things, right? It's the, when you have that fear built up, I mean, I think most artists, you know, are in the same box with you as I just spent, you know, if I spend money on this, it's got to be good. Um, yeah. You know, so there's this fear of using the thing, you know, using the canvas, using the block, using the paint. And you think of it like yeah. with wood, right? Or not with food. <laughs> For the day, just a little jet lag here. Um, we, like you eat the thing. Like you can look at the thing, but you should also enjoy the thing. You don't save it because it's going to go bad at some point. Um, or you can do it where you're like, what's the low threshold? All right, well, we'll start with charcoal and newsprint, um, you know, because it's inexpensive and cheap, and you can trick your brain into becoming comfortable with it because it's not saying, oh, if it's on canvas, it must mean something. Like, to be a spoiler alert for me, I don't paint on canvas unless somebody's giving me something and I cover it up, right, because I don't like the texture of it. But we do have this preciousness, right? That, you know, oh, you know, if it's on a good panel, if it's, you know, know, art supplies are expensive, right? If I'm going to use them, it has to be worthwhile. It's like, no, you've got to use them. It's like you've got to burn the incense to get the smell. You need need to open the bottle of wine to drink it. Um, So you've got to go through that point. Yeah, stop saving it for, you know, well, I might need this. No, you need it now. That's kind of the point. Use the thing now. Don't live in in that hope that you'll get to it when, you, could, you know, anything can happen to anyone at any time. You want to live in regret that you never did the thing, that you never tried the thing, and I'm talking to myself while I say this. Um, you know, I do the thing. Try the thing. <laughs> I know. So it's, it's very it's appropriate. I, I, I've been watching random movies. Um, I really like a good, feel-good movie. I know that people are like, ooh, aren't you dark and spooky? I'm like, no, I want something that tells me the world's going to be better than I think it is. So sure. I watched that last night. And I had never heard of this movie. I don't know why, but it's called Last Holiday with Queen Latifah. And Queen Latifah is amazing, right? <laughs> and there's yeah. this, uh, crazy cast of awesome folks in there but it's all about that like you just think about the possibilities and you're like one day I'll do the thing and then suddenly what if there isn't going to be another day what do you do yeah um and how we learn to live by experimenting and putting you know to to go for the thing and do the thing because that's what life's for yeah I and yeah I've you know, there's so many things. It's so weird because one day you wake up and it's like, oh, um, I've been saving this forever and I have this thing and quite frankly, I've never used it. You open it up and the thing has gone bad already. It's like you saved it for 30 years. What the hell were you thinking? When were you going to get to it? And I, I, I now being in my 60s, 
there's a whole bunch of things that I have in my home that it's like, what were you saving this for? The only thing that that has benefited me for recently are candles because you never know when the power is going to go out. And we were having a little bit of a conversation before we went on the air that I had lost power for five hours and I needed those candles and that was fine. Um, But, you know, candles are easily accessible. Um, But your art should be easily accessible too. And you should be allowed to give yourself permission to do these things, which is something, you know, coming from uh, a family where there was, I mean, you're born with self-doubt, and if you don't have it when you're born, they happily hand it to you um, in droves. So, you know, very negative, very, very negative. And you've got to break free of that. I'm, I'm far from the only person who was raised to believe that I had no talent for anything in life at all. So I encourage everyone of every age to not only buy visual alchemy, but if you've been holding yourself back, read the book, come to it from a different angle, and and start creating. Because it's not just applicable to sigil work. It's applicable to everything. And everything you've been stopping yourself from doing, you really should just experience it because life is awfully damn short. So I appreciate that so much. Did you always want to be an artist, or is this something that happened just kind of organically to you? I've been making art um, for pretty much as as long as I remember. I I think my first art classes were around, um, I was age three, Um, (laughs) the ones that I can remember. So my my dad is... um, an artistic type of person, um, a very creative person, I would say. And um, when I was growing up, he was doing photography and like presentations and such with like slides and um, you know, doing that sort of running his own business. And my mom was, I remember her doing craft shows where she made these beautiful wreaths and um, other kind of crafty things that you did like in the late 70s and early 80s. <laughs> and yeah. and so it kind of it grew up with, with that, and my mom would not say she's artistic, but she definitely has um, a style and aesthetic um, and very, very strong opinions about it. And, you know, my dad still continues to be creative. So um, luckily I had uh, at least that sort of supportive kind of quirky environment, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, we all, both my, my, my brothers and I, we all, you know, did, did school well. That yeah, was a big focus. You know, my brothers are yeah. both now educators in various school systems. And, um, you know, so at the same time, it wasn't, it wasn't sort of, it doesn't, it's not a loosey-goosey kind of art environment. Um, and there are definitely things that I was told I could not do that I still believe today. <laughs> really? Um, really? That's shocking uh, to me. You of all people. That shocks me. Oh, I, I uh, you know, at some point, I think it was 11 or 12, my mother says, Laura, you cannot sing. And uh, you, <laughs> the only oh. time you'll find me singing is in my car uh, when I'm alone. <laughs> you know, I'm married to a musician. So um, I am more than happy to let him do all of the singing. And uh, <laughs> just like, well, I can't do everything, right? Uh, so... <laughs> Wow. No, I find I find it fascinating because 
I was a singer. I sang opera mm. all through grade school, and then I was in rock bands for years and years and years. And I've I've always been a singer. That was the one thing I could do. And mm-hmm. you know, over time, I lost part of my, the hearing in my right ear from from uh, I had caught the fl- a really bad flu, and it affected my hearing. So you know, in the last twenty something years, my hearing is thrown off, so I don't really sing anymore. But that was the one thing that I knew I could do. Everything else mm. I couldn't do. Anything sports I could not do. Anything artistic I was really horrible at. I still draw houses. Remember in kindergarten, you, you draw it with a bunch of lines, you know, rectangles and triangles, and that's how you made a house. And, and that was yep. it. And that's pretty much the extent of my talent to this day. So I just find it interesting and kind of upsetting that you were told you couldn't sing because I don't know I don't I think people can learn to sing maybe you can't not everyone can sing opera granted I can't even do it anymore because as I've aged a lot of my high end is gone anyway but I believe people everybody can carry a tune with time and patience and I guess I'm teaching myself the lesson I'm trying to give you which is, oh, I can apply that to art. Oops, I just sold on myself again. Okay, fine. I really, I really do need to do this. You, you, really, you really do that to me a lot where you write something and it's like, I know, I know I should. I know I can. I know, yes, I can do it. And then I talk myself out of it because I'm a chicken. Um but yeah, I, I'm I'm heart hurt that you were told you couldn't sing because I find that singing is something that comes literally inside your person, and mm-hmm. I always validate people whether they have the most perfect voice or an okay voice or whatever. If it's coming from you, it means something and it's beautiful, and you should do it because you fucking love it, and that that's the only reason it needs to happen. Because you like doing it. There you go. I'm so. totally, totally on board. <laughs> pull that negativity away from you and throw it where it belongs in the garbage. Okay. Well, so, I, I am sure that Florence in the machine does not mad, does not care that I say anything loudly in the car with her. <laughs> I think she's probably thrilled that you do because that's the whole point. You, that's the whole point of music is to help somebody feel better or help them through a situation. Music has saved my life on many occasions where I thought all was lost. So, yeah, I get it. I totally get it. But as I've gotten older, art does that. You know, well, think and of it as, does that. Think of uh, how, you know, as I said earlier, art, you know, has so many different forms. And now I'm thinking about it. You're saying your voice coming through you, um, and you know I get that from my art, but I also get that from dance, and yeah. you know so it's that coming of how do we express ourselves? So finding some outlet that works for you that you can express yourself and feel the freedom to, um, in in ways that build up your confidence. Like as you mentioned, you know the difficulties with voice and hearing. Like I've punctured my eardrum at least three times. Very very talented. Wow. Wow. Uh, which probably, yeah, <laughs> that's great. 
crazy stuff. I don't even know the third time how I managed to, but I did. Um, and I, I can't even tell you if it's been, I think it's two, twice in one ear and one the other. So I've done myself in pretty well. <laughs> now explains for people going, oh, that's probably why you don't hear so <laughs> Oh, my gosh. I, I do have a bit of audio processing um, that 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 does um there's some difficulties that happen um but you know, it's like how else do we work around like all of our bodies are different all of our abilities are different and finding you know easing your way into because how you're saying about like people expect like oh you know, so so your house does look like a little square and a triangle on top like sure okay because that's our symbol right that's what we i talk about in sigilitry is we yeah. Our, our brains are wired to make symbols, right? So we say draw a house, and your brain goes, ah, house, it's a triangle and a square. Boom, I yep. got it, right? But we're not really observing or perceiving houses. Like if I challenge you to be like, okay, go outside, not right now, <laughs> if you were to go outside and look at your house and see, how many rectangles and squares and triangles do you see, right? Not just okay. what your brain says, yeah. draw your house, but when you look at it, the angle of the roof, like what kind of triangle that is. And I bet if, you know, after sitting and looking at it for a little bit and I gave you some newsprint and charcoal, you would draw something that was far more realistic representing your house because it's the switching off of the symbolic brain and tapping into the perceiving part of our brain. Wow, I've never thought about it. That's pretty brilliant. My goodness. It's, yeah, I guess you're right. It's a, it, it's a big thing. It's, I love, uh, I think I, rec- I definitely recommend it in Sigil I might have recommended it again in Visual Alchemy in the um, uh, the back part of resources is drawing on the right side of the brain, which is a book that came out in yeah. 79, 78, 79, somewhere around yeah. there. Uh, and you know, the art school teacher really pushing, how do we look at things? Um, how do we switch that symbolic part of our brain off and truly see, you know, what does an eye really look like besides that almond shape in a circle in it? Like what's the shading? What, what happens there? Um, there's so many different ways, and they're really fun, and they can be highly ritualized and transinducing and fun. Like, they're messy and they're fun. And as long as you start to let your brain shut up about, like, is this dumb or this is never going to hang in a gallery, I'm like, I got plenty of stuff that's never going to hang in a gallery museum. It's fine. It's for me. It doesn't have to be for anybody else. Yeah. I, you're right. You're absolutely right. And it's interesting because in that book that you mentioned, um, there's this exercise where you actually draw, you look in your room and you pick something and you have to draw it upside down. And it's very yes. weird. But when you shut your brain off and just follow the lines that your brain is witnessing, seeing, um, it does change how you perceive drawing. It's, it's really an interest experiment. Did you ever want to write a book basically or a basic art book on just teaching people how to let go of fear and do simple step-by-step pieces like that? Um, I haven't specifically done that through thinking in a book format until you know, visual alchemy in some ways. 
but it's something yeah. that I have been teaching through, you know, through sigil witchery and through dance. I used to teach a dance intensive called Museum Quality, which uh, mm. is yeah. really looking at dance as an art and how we can frame it in visual art terms. So getting people to do gesture drawing, to do blind contour, line drawing, uh, to think about perspective and shape and composition. And, you know, you have a bunch of accomplished dancers in a room, and they will also let you know about their fears of making art. Uh, and so and it's amazing to see how awesome people, you know, how their, not only their dance changes, but how their approach to art changes in just two to three days of just working with it and playing with it and putting away expectations and just seeing what happens and stop comparing yourself to everybody else. Yeah, that's a really hard thing. I don't know if that's a woman thing or a female perception thing or a mm-hmm. human thing or a brain block thing, but it fascinates me because I've seen you dance. And to me, the idea that you would have insecurity about anything is like, no way. You don't look at people and immediately see what they're feeling. So, a lot mm-hmm. of the time, we, we we tend to, at least in my experience, we don't per, we don't perceive that people are perceiving their own flaws. It's like for me, that's right. such an internalized thing that I perceive it all on me. I don't assume everyone else sees it because, well, I did when I was younger. Oh my God, I thought everything that was wrong with me was absolutely a hundred percent visible through silent clues or the way I cross my legs at the table, who knows? I mean, you just feel so vulnerable when you're young and still learning about Mm -hmm. self-protection. It's just such a weird thing. But for me, dance was, I mean, I danced briefly in my 20s. I, I, I did some belly dancing. And then I was in a really bad car crash, and that kind of changed everything instantly. <laughs> and I've not been able to move my head to do the movements anymore. My hips will still move, but it's it's kind of an entire body flow thing, as you obviously know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've had things that I could do that got taken away for different reasons or, you know, it's an amazing thing to hear that dancers, I mean, you're graceful and you're beautiful and, you know, the curves are amazing and the music is always amazing and, and watching dancers dance is like, one of the most beautiful, sensuous, hypnotic things in the world. So the idea that there are a bunch of dancers or any dancers who perceive, you know, flaws in themselves is such a weird concept to me. Do you find that to be true? Are people, like, surprised by that statement? Because we're always, you know, on the outside looking in or thinking that we're looking in, right, when we – when we yeah. see someone else, you know, musician, you know, musicians performing, dancers doing their thing, or you know, actors on stage, and you know, meanwhile, as that person doing the thing, we're hyper focused on what's not perfect, you know. So, you know, there's the the famous quote about the violinist who, you know, like who someone said, oh, you must be flawless, you know, as that's what you've seen, you know, over years as you've gotten better. And he's like, I just see less flaws, uh, you know. <laughs> And wow. you know, I can think back to years, you know, of 
getting the video after performance and just gritting my teeth and was like, oh, gosh, you know, like, look, the first few through. And I had an instructor who said, you really should watch everything you do at least three times. Uh, yeah. Because first, first you're going to see all the flaws. And second, you're going to start to see it outside of yourself. And by the third time, you're going to see what you did right um, and really grow from that. And I think that's true in any discipline is giving it multiple, you know, viewings to kind of, this is practice, right? What we learn from it, because if we just see what's not working, we don't get to see what is working and how Mm. we can help support what's working. Yeah, hard, you know, I'm, it's definitely hard. It is hard, and it's interesting, and it's kind of like the concept that my job, you know, I work in a situation where there are a lot of moving parts, and, you know, no one says every, anything when everything goes right, but, man, the minute one thing goes wrong and 100 people are saying, how did this happen, how did this happen, but no one ever says anything about the 100 things that went right before this mm-hmm. one ever happened. And I guess we're all like that to ourselves as well from, you know, exactly what you just said. Yeah, I guess once you calm down from the self-judgment of seeing it the first time, maybe you're like, okay, of everything that I was afraid of, I've already just viewed, now I can go back and maybe be a little more objective. And then maybe the third time, oh, okay, I did that pretty well. So you, maybe you start to learn to live more in an appreciative stance for what you're doing as opposed to that judgmental stance. Exactly. And, and you, the funny thing is I can look back at those old videos now and I just enjoy them. I, I'm not yeah. gritting. <laughs> you know, like, oh, my God, <laughs> look at this this moment in time. And, you know, there here are the, the things that were, you know, that were beautiful about it. And, oh, I really like, I didn't remember doing that. That's great. You know, you, we just, you know, as we, hopefully as we get older, we, we relax into accepting ourselves and hopefully appreciating what we're doing. And I think that's also what comes with practice is, you know, it's just not only learning the discipline, uh, the ins and outs and the facts, right, the facts and foibles about all of yeah. that, but, truly learning, you know, so that it becomes um, instinctual even, right, that it simply becomes a part of who we are rather than being something that we scrutinize. Yeah, that's, you know, and that's so applicable to everything, to be honest with you. It, it's such a lesson mm-hmm. to, like, let go. You know, as you get older, you start to give fewer shits about things. Fewer things bother you because you've already made so many fucking mistakes. If you get to be any kind of age over 50, you know, it's like, been there, done that, you know, bought the T-shirt and the ashtray. Yeah, I fucked that up 9,000 days for Sunday. If you have any kind of objectivity about yourself and life and people that you love, you know, you start to appreciate flaws. You start to understand in idiosyncratic behaviors that you've developed over time. It, it, it just becomes another little wrinkle in what makes you the person that you are. And, yeah, you, you know, do we still have insecurities? Oh, fuck yeah. We, I think everyone has insecurities up until the last breathing second. 
but that's okay. It's, you know, what does it stop you from doing is more the question, more than the insecurity right. itself. What can you overcome to, to have an experience that you haven't done before? So when I buy these damn canvases and start actually drawing on them, yeah, I'm going to do it. Um, you can do the thing. <laughs> I'm going to do the thing. Yes, do the thing. Because um, why not do the thing, really? I mean, so let me ask you this, and this is something I meant to ask you like years ago that I, for some reason, never remember to ask you. How did, what did you start painting on first? when you decided to become a professional artist, did you evolve into the mixed media or were you doing basically, you know, like paper? Because I know you've done stuff, paper and charcoal, and uh, obviously you've done water, you've done oil, you, but you do wood, you do mixed media. How does that happen? Uh, part of it was um, necessity, which I'll, I'll get to. So the things that I was doing, I think back to um, you know high school, I was learning a whole bunch of different disciplines. So I was introduced to printmaking, uh, and that put me on the path of learning uh, monotypes and intaglio and woodcuts and lino cuts, all those kinds of things. Um, so you know, once you're doing that, you're thinking in this really interesting deconstructive as well as constructive way. Uh, that makes any kind of sense. Uh, But, you know, I've always been into drawing. So, you know, playing around with that, um, you know, doing all sorts of um, pastels and colored pencils. And, uh, you know, when you're you're taking AP art in high school and governor school, different things like that, you know, they really are pushing you to try as many media as possible, do photography, do ceramics, do sculpture, um, so that you can be exposed to so many different things. And, you know, once I had gone through schooling and, and so I majored in printmaking, and, you know, you kind of need a press <laughs> to, uh, to do printmaking, um, as well as a lot of other things outside of, say, block printing, um, which even then it helps to have something like a small press to do it. And I was looking at, well, what do I have around me? And one of the things I did you know, seem to have in great supply was scrap wood. Uh, you know, just random pieces mm-hmm. of wood. I'm not sure how they started coming my way, but <laughs> it's just because I wow. like things. Uh, but, you know, cutting up little pieces of birch and, you know, saving pieces here and there. And so, like, here, here it is. I have these little pieces of wood, and, you know, they're fairly inexpensive if I wanted to buy them at the art supply store, too. And I use... Um, a non-bodied type of acrylic, which means it's not like fake oil paint. It's more liquidy. Um, it's also fairly inexpensive, but it's pig- pigment-rich. And so, you know, it's like it wasn't a huge amount of cost, but it was like, what it, what can I afford? Um, you know, probably my brushes were the most expensive thing. And, yeah. you know, it was just, what do I have? And then one of the great things is that um, back in around 2000. 14, I think it was, 2014 or 15, my friend Mary was clearing out her garage and she had all of these wood um, cedar panels that are for use for siding. Um, she's like, would you like this to paint on? Because she already saw I was doing things on wood. And I said, sure. And that's how the Economa series and so many other things came into being because it was this beautiful aged fine grain wood that was just going to get thrown out or burned. And 
that's what I used, and I cut them in the three-foot, two-foot, one-foot pieces, even smaller for the little tiny spell paintings. And so that kind of influenced the whole style. Uh, so I'm very much a what do I have? Um, I'm very, you know, budget conscious. What can I use? And what is going to do the art the best way? Um, so trying to find all, all of those things. Uh, and also the more space I've had over time means that my art has gotten uh, bigger and more complicated. And I love being able to incorporate multiple materials because, again, one of my early influences was Nick Bantock, who's a mixed media artist, does collage and assemblage and things like that. And uh, he was the one who wrote the forge for the book. So I was like, ah, it's all come back. Oh, oh my gosh. And he, okay, so, because I will tell you, as the common person as I am sitting at home looking at, you know, watching your shows on YouTube and, you know, watching the live when, you were, when you've done sales, of your artwork and, and all of the things and, see, you know, being on your website, like I check it out every month or so to see, oh, she had anything? What's going on? Um, what do I need today? Um, you know, you have this vision that an artist is just like, ah, I'm going to do this. You never think it's because, oh, somebody had something that they didn't need anymore and you're like, yeah, I can use that. I mean, it, in my head, art is such a – ethereal, brainy thing. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it is. Because I, I studied art. I, I went to um, many, many art classes. My mother was a designer. I was dragged to museums even before I wanted to be. All the things. So I've been exposed to a lot of high-class art. So to me, artists are like these mystical creatures, so to speak, because that's how they were put into my brain as being, you know, of another world with all of these talents that I would never possess. I mean, it's just something that gets built up in your head as a kid when you have parents mm -hmm. that are really into the arts and very fancy, or so they think, whatever. So to me, it's like you just had this brilliant idea out of nowhere that you were going to use wood because what a wonderful natural medium it was. had no idea that that's how you got <laughs> wow. I mean, not that you're not a mythical creature, because LTZ is a legend, as you know. But seriously, I mean, but that's how it was in my brain, that, you know, you were just this incredibly gifted artist, who not really gifted because it's skill and you have to practice the skill and no one handed it to you, obviously. You have to work at it. But, you know, you're just, you're so brainy and, and beautiful and smart and just creative and it all just happens for you the way it's supposed to because you're this amazing being. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> Oh, you it's, it's, it's kind of it's kind of a it's the Rumpelstiltskin kind of trick, isn't it? Right? It's like, and and I think that's what one of the big things I learned at RISD is like they're like how do you take this thing and make it into art? You know, how do you take the straw and make it yeah. into gold? And that's why I loved about the early, um, oh gosh, uh, uh, Project Runway, right? The early yeah. Project Runways with Tim Gunn before mm -hmm. it went like all about the drama is they're like, okay, yeah. here's a car, cut apart the car and make a dress. Right. 
Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's, that's, that makes my design brain so happy. So I, I really kind of love the challenge. Like on one hand, it makes it makes my budget very happy. Um, but I, I yeah. love the challenge of taking something and being like, what what does this want to be? Um, and what can it be playful mm-hmm. with? So it doesn't have to be, you know, a pre-manufactured canvas. It can just be this old piece of, you know, a wooden mold. I've got some of those in my closet where I'm like, one day, one day I will know what you are for. <laughs> yeah. with you. But you'll do something with so. it because you'll get inspired or you'll see something and it will spark something in you to create because that's what you normally do. See, that's your normal process. For me, it's I hold on to something and I think I'm going to do something with it and that day never fucking comes because I never get that inspired. But for you, you will do something with it. So it's a, it's, it's a bit different. It's not like the rest of us holding on to something for a rainy day. It's more like, collecting shit that I'm not really ever going to fucking use. You'll use your stuff. You'll make something happen out of it. So I wanted to ask you, I mean, I know we're, we're cutting down on time, but I, I – do you have a few extra minutes? Because I want to ask you something else. Sure. Okay, cool. Um, so I wanted to ask your opinion about this AI art that seems mm. to be a very big conversation right now. And, I, you know, because you're an artist, and I have a lot of thoughts about AI art, and some of them conflict. Um, so I kind of wanted your opinion, because this seems to be a really big topic of conversation lately. What are your thoughts on this? Oh, it, is, it is definitely a complicated issue. Uh, Nathan and I, I think we talked about this an hour on the drive down to New Jersey a few days ago. Like, oh, wow. Because, you know, there's AI art and there's also AI books, which will, you know, we're in danger of losing another hour to just talk about the bullshit of AI books being generated on Amazon. Um, Yeah, uh, that stresses me out for my art. That that stresses me out a lot for my writer friends because I feel like, okay, so I don't know shit from shit. Granted, I'm, I'm, you know, I talk. That's what I do. That's what I do for a living in my day job, and that's what I do, you know, with this podcast. So I'm very lucky. I get to be in my own element. But I get really stressed out because I see a lot about fake books, which freaks me out. Because people, I mean, I've never been able to write a book. I don't know that I could ever write a book of any kind. And then AI art, you know, it, it feels like, it's stealing from people that did something. And I, don't, I haven't done a deep dive into it, but it, I worry about it. Because, I mean, I was married to somebody who was a great artist at one time, and then he turned around and created a tarot deck using programs instead of his art. And it, fa- it really failed horribly. And it should. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I told him it sucked at the time. And we're talking about probably 10, 12 years ago, the mm-hmm. 10 years ago that this happened. And I was like, you know, you were such a good artist. Why are you doing this generated bullshit? This isn't real skill. And then we got it, I, you know, got shouted down about my opinion. But so I want your, I want to know what you think. You're an artist, this is what you do for a living. So what are your thoughts about all that? 
So the the first underlying major issue I see is it is hella problematic when it comes to consent. Um, you know, so many artists uh, and authors, right? If we're going, we can lump in AI on both sides for writing books and yeah. writing and making art. Is that the majority of artists and authors they are not um, consulted or asked for consent for their work to be included. It's just mind, and it's absolute bullshit that you need to opt out, right? Like, like, all right, the horse has already left the barn, but you should now you can opt out of the horse leaving the barn in the first place, but it's already gone. So good luck, right? <laughs> it's like absolute yeah. nonsense um, that, you know, the tech bros think is just fine because, ooh, we automated it, right? So on that level, it's highly, highly problematic. On the point of being a tool, I have another one artist friend who he is using it. Um, he fed his own artwork into it and is using it to generate to make uh, a comic and different sketches and things. And I'm like, all right, if that's what helps him, um, and he's using yeah. it as his work, it looks like his work, um, then, yeah. okay, then it's not that much different than, in this instance, it's not much different than a Photoshop filter, right? It's, not, it's running a program. Yeah. So that, you know, okay. But, you know, so when it starts being not a tool for someone to experiment with and it's being used as a shortcut, like, to, oh, now we don't have to pay artists. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Now we don't have to pay authors, right? Now we can just take, you know, Laura's book and Matt's book and Devin's book and Thorne's book and put it into a blender and give it some sort of wackadoodoo, you know, the Mystic Witch, and, you know, with an AI cover yeah. put on by Susie PowerQ, uh, you know, who has a, um, a stock photo and no, you know, she's, she's 70 years old, but no one's ever heard of her in the community, but she's written 20 books. You know, like that's absolute theft. And, and uh, you know, again, like this is just not how it's supposed to be. So it's like if you're using it as a tool to further your own artwork, um, or your own writing. There was a great um, This American Life recently, The Ghost in the Machine, it was a rerun, is an author um, or writer talking about using an AI prompt to write about the death of her sister. Mm-hmm. And it's really fascinating because it did help her write the story in the end, which is, you know, so it's a difficult yeah. emotional topic. And so there it's a tool, and it's still her work. It's clearly her work. It's you know in her voice, and she just used it to get over the emotional hurdles. So that's really yeah. good. But this whole you know, <laughs> and then we won't even go into the whole security issue of feeding your you know profile photos into, <laughs> into oh, anything please. on Facebook. Um, you know, so there it's a whole bunch of nebulous areas, and I would say the majority of them are just toxic and danger zones. With a few of them being actually helpful so that's my my yeah. in a nutshell well i mean and i think what you're saying is a hundred percent and i didn't realize so you educated me on this as well that you know that you can use it to enhance or manipulate your own work that's different mm-hmm. i'm all for people taking their own work and using whatever they need to in their own work. But the idea that you can just 
sit down and pull up a program and say, okay, I want, a, I mean, and this is what my ex-husband did. And it just fucking ran all over me because he has the talent to do the actual drawing himself. But he would send mm-hmm. me these pictures and he would say, okay, what do you think of this outfit? And it was completely computer generated. It had nothing to do with his work at all and none of his skill. And I'm like, this is really fucking cheating, isn't it? No, it's not cheating. How dare you say, how dare you be the judge of what is considered art? So it became that argument of, well, who am I to say what should be considered art or not considered art? And that's subjective. But I'm like, something about this doesn't feel very right. It, it mm-hmm. feels like thievery to a certain extent. And it was. It, none of it had anything to do with anything he did. He slapped together in less than four months this entire fucking deck and proceeds to self-publish it. And I'm like, I don't even want it. And I didn't get it because <laughs> I think he's still pretty pissed off at me. But, I mean, when someone tells you, I mean, you're an artist, I think, you get to judge what art is because you do it. You make it happen for a living. But is it? Is it? Am I crossing a line by saying it's not art? Not being an artist myself. You. Know, if we go back to what we said in the beginning that art is at the heart expression, right? Art is a process, yeah. and. You know, going back to that Rilke quote, right? That all art is having gone through the artist going through danger um, to go through the process yeah. all the way to the end. Then, yeah. if you are simply taking AI, um, you know, art that's filtering other people's stuff, and you're not going through the process, one, at the heart of that, is there truly the expression? Is there truly the journey? happening and I know people are like well I'm really good at ending the code words and it takes I'm like whatever you can tell yourself whatever uh-huh. you know <laughs> and then sorry yeah. whoever gets pissed off at that but yes it takes skill but at the same yeah. time that doesn't necessarily mean it's art and so the human part of it the human journey and what happens in between those spaces um, is crucial and you know thinking about the the digitally create art. So like, you know, what you're talking about. So I think about the tarot decks, like the tarot decks that started coming out in the two thousands onward that were digitally manipulated yeah. decks. Yep. Uh, they all pretty much almost all of them uniformly fell flat. You know, except for the few where you couldn't tell they were digitally manipulated because they were largely mixed media art that the art was scanned in and, you know, maybe they refine things or they combine images, but it still felt like a complete sentence, right? Um, yeah. Rather than plop, plop and paste kind of stuff. And, you know, there are yeah. digital artists today whose decks I have um, because they have transcended the media that it's not just a digitally created thing. They're doing drawing in a digital way that is truly art. Um, that's absolutely gorgeous and consistent um, and has a soul to it. But those decks are still few and far between for me. And, you know, so the people who are just running scripts and, you know, aren't, you know, especially with tarot decks, like you have to dig into the symbolism. You have to really think about these things. 
There are no shortcuts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's why, spoiler alert, that's why I haven't done a tarot deck and I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> there are no shortcuts. Um, and, you know, we want to, you know, art, artists are also intrinsically lazy. <laughs> um, uh, because we do, we're like, we, we are so excited by ideas, but we want to get to that idea as soon as possible. Even though we've been doing this for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years, we're like, mm, I yeah. want to see it now, but we still have to do the thing. And it always works yeah. out better when we go through the process. Yeah, so. a, real, a true a true tarot deck takes so fucking much. And, you know, and the other thing that pissed me off, that pisses me off about what my ex did, the example I used, is the fact that it, it, somebody put that information in there, which is how he was able to generate what he generated, and they were someone's experiences, but not fucking his. So he's, mm-hmm. in essence, a fucking thief. And when you take images without any personal input, and I'm sorry, sitting and clicking on a couple of things is not personal input. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about right. something that you painted or drew or, or put tears over or you create. I mean, he created a card for me when we were first married, and it was beautiful, and I still have it somewhere, and it's super small, but it was really cool. And I prized that so far above anything he did after because he leaned on this digital concept that had absolutely not any of his soul. Someone's soul was there, but it wasn't his. So, sorry, mm-hmm. still thievery, hate it for you. That's why your fucking deck never sold. Bye-bye. And I don't talk to him anyway because <laughs> he's turned into a Trump supporter, so fuck him and all of his oh. friends. Anyway. Yeah, so that was that was a real sour thing that happened over the last ten years of our relationship. Uh, bye bye. So yeah, it was just not good. But thank you. I'm I'm glad because you know when you are not an artist by nature, which I am not, you kind of feel like well maybe I shouldn't say anything because maybe I really don't know what I'm talking about. But the fact is is that I know you and I know other artists and it's like this feels like bullshit. Is it me? Am I out of turn? Thank you for letting me know that I'm not. Because that this whole AI thing is just really pissing me off. <laughs> so you're welcome. And uh, yeah, I yeah, think no. we're we're still going to see bits of this thing. But you, know, and you think you think of the AI generated sigils? Do you remember the sigil machine that was like a, a website a yeah. year or two ago? <laughs> You know, yeah, well, like, wasn't again, it, it started a game? Yeah, I thought it started as one of those Facebook game things where it would, like, generate a sigil for you. And then there was a website that did it, too. Uh, probably. I, I kind of get a bit foggy about the details, but, you know, like, well, you know, you, could it be an effective sigil? Maybe. But, again, if you do the work and you figure it out yourself, you draw the thing in whichever way you can it's going to be more powerful for you. It's going to have more meaning um, than something that was created for you. And you know, we already have also, like, one more little thing about it. Like, it's about the devaluing of art. It's another level, you know, I talk about this mm. in the book, of, you know, we have such a divorce from seeing art as something integral and accessible and part of our lives because especially the last two, 300 years, 
of, you know, making art elite, um, to, you know, art with a big A. And, you know, art should be accessible and for everybody. But at the same time, if we devalue what the art making process itself, then we're not doing anybody any favors. Yeah, so, no. That's then, another you know, there's something special. There's something special about art and artists. It's a talent. It's a skill. It's something that is learned. It is something that is practiced. It is something that is nurtured and grown or not. But once you start making art less special and devalued, you deval- first of all, you're devaluing the artist. Second of all, if everyone could do it, they would. And to a certain degree, everyone can make art for themselves. But for, for, for you know, public consumption and to be a valuable artist, and that's how you make your living, that's a different level. That's a different mm-hmm. skill set. I can make a wreath in my home and have it be okay for me in my room. That doesn't mean it's going to be like going to someone who actually does this for a living and get a, getting a high-quality piece. Art should always be valuable. Art, art tells our story. It tells our history. It tells our future by skilled artists. Skilled artists mm-hmm. are a special breed of human. I keep saying this. I know a lot of artists, and, you know, not all of them get to make a living through their art. We have to support our artists. You know, you said you even go and buy art from other artists. I think that's beautiful and wonderful. And I'm so glad to hear that because artists need to uplift each other. People have, I mean, and I think art has really been devalued and, and the importance of it, you know, coming from a musician background and being surrounded by my family, friends who are all artists, Art is such a precious thing, and it gives us perspective, and it gives us insight into other ways of thinking. So please, if you can support an artist, whether it's buying the artist's books or buying the artist's art or giving them a hot meal when they need it, I mean, it's so important to take care of art and keep that alive because we die as a society. Our history disappears without art. People don't realize that. And I think it's something right. that needs to be talked about more often because this is how things get passed down. Our history is full of art. You know, think about uh, the paintings in the White House, good, bad, or indifferent. That is the history of our country um, mm-hmm. in pictorial form, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, we have to remember all of these things that happened and all of these horrible things that happened and some of these great things that happen, and it's all done through art. It's all done through storytelling. It's all done through various forms of art. Please appreciate artists. Oh, and before we go, I would be really fucking remiss if I did not talk about the Gorgon's Guide to Magical Resistance. <laughs> so give me just a couple of more minutes for that, please. <laughs> sure. Tell, tell me about it. I know. I'm sorry. Uh, I know it's the next few 50 minutes, but can just can you just tell us about it really quick? Sure. So the Gorgon's Guide to Magical Resistance uh, came out uh, in November. It is the follow-up to the New Aradia, um, which is Guide to Magical Resistance. Um, they're both from Revelor Press, which is a small woman-owned independent press. And yes. uh, so, 
2018 is when the new Aradia came out. Um, we had raised over part of the proceeds of that went to Southern Poverty Law Center and to Emily's List. I think we raised um, nearly $4,000 um, at this point. Wow. Um, awesome. Split among those organizations. And the Gorgon's Guide does the same as well. Now, this particular one, it's a little um, it's a little thicker than the new Aradia. We have, I think, 30 different contributors to this. I think Lawson had 24. Um, it was really hard. We had hundreds of submissions. <laughs> it was like, well, we still wanted to keep it a pocket guide. It still needs to be a certain size. Um, but this one was a you know, response to what was going on about trans rights, reproductive rights, um, what's happening to indigenous people in North America and other areas, um, and really seeking out, uh, you know, queer voices, uh, black, indigenous, people of color, you know, their, their voices to contribute to this. Uh, and so it's, um, I don't want to say it's darker, but it's, it's, it's really getting into the nitty-gritty of what do we do to protect our natural resources, to protect people, um, those who are marginalized, and I, you know, I, I had really hoped when we did the new Aradia that it would become obsolete. <laughs> As in, like, we yeah. fix these problems in society, but currently we're not going in that direction. Um, but I will do everything I can to make sure we hopefully get back to that point where we don't have to really talk about magical resistance because we've evolved as humanity. But that might, you know, I'm, I, I'm a hope punk, so <laughs> I really I hey. would like to see that happen yeah. one day. There is nothing, nothing wrong with hope. I mean, <laughs> without hope, we'd all give up. Continue, but LPZ, yep. I love you to death. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about visual alchemy and fake fucking art, which isn't art. Sorry, but it's not. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for hanging out with me for well over the hour. I really appreciate it. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful new year, and I hope we get some time together in the new year as well. Do you have anything uh, interesting coming up soon? Uh, I will be at the Ganacon in March, um, and between the World Sacred Space in April, I will be back at Mystic South in July, so definitely see you there. Um, yes, ma'am. And a few few things in between and some other stuff um, waiting for confirmation in the future. But um, I'm hoping to do at least uh, keeping it to one big thing a month because I, cool. I do like being home too. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure. And I'm sure like the kitties are like very happy when you're home. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're the best part of it. You know, it's hard to travel with four cats. So. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. Give folks the website one more time so they can get a hold of your art and see all your goods. Uh, Probably the easiest one to go to is lauratempestzacroft.com, and that will, if you follow the links, will get you to uh, my Patreon, to my shop, uh, to all where all the art is, all those kind of different things, and my various social media, as well as upcoming classes and events. Yay! Thanks again for spending extra time with me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on again. Always a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. I'll be back next week on Thursday, the 4-15, on Friday, First Friday's Politics with Talison Govannon. 
And on Saturday, I will be speaking with Stephanie Woodfield and Karen Storminger about prayers for the Morrigan. Have a wonderful, happy, and healthy New Year, and I will see you on the other side. Take care. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.